Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Hey, what's up, my Woods people? I'm Tyler Jones, and this is the Backcountry Miniseries from the Element Podcast. Casey, fill them in. Since we are diving headfirst into the backcountry hunting this season, we decided to call in some help and talk to some experts that know how to crush it in the backcountry. So make sure and subscribe, and if this is helpful, we'd love for you guys to give us a five-star rating and an iTunes review. Absolutely. Now let's get into it, because I still have a lot of Mountain House flavors to try before September gets here. Okay, today on the show we've got Mark Hilsing of Exo Mountain Gear. What's going on, Mark? Oh, not much, man. Uh, just uh, excited as we're into summer here and preparing for hunt. So glad to have this conversation with you guys. Yeah, that's good. We are uh, doing the same. We've been talking a lot of whitetail, talking a lot of elk. Uh, just kind of, it's the season of dreaming. You know what I mean? Like. I've got a pretty yeah. good tag, so there's a lot of dreams involved there, but it's just always fun to think about like how the next season is going to go for you and stuff. But are uh, you getting out and do any bear hunting this time of year? Yeah, so I'm actually getting ready to take off on a bear hunt. Um, we do this thing every year with XMI gear called the Death Hike. Ooh, and that sounds super story. fun. <laughs> I've heard about it, actually. <laughs> it's, about, it's as fun as it sounds, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, last it's something different every year. Basically, just to, to test ourselves mentally, physically, test gear, that type of thing. Last year we did uh, just shy of a hundred miles um, mm. in a couple days in in Idaho, and we're actually planning on going to the Eagle Caps Wilderness this year. And with the way that uh, the winter they had and the earlier dates we have for the hike, like snow is going to be impossible. Basically, like it it makes finding a route or at least a good fun high route really tough and so we kind of called this audible just a few weeks ago and we're turning the death hike into a death hike slash hunt and uh oh, so cool. we're gonna be doing a bear like a team bear hunt basically so cool. we have 11 teams of three and we're all heading off into different areas of the frank church wilderness oh nice know. um and then doing this kind of short uh challenging adventures bear hunt so we're actually starting at midnight and then you have to hike at least 20 miles before you can even start hunting so you're essentially hiking through the night uh, <laughs> to hopefully get into a spot 20 miles deep by daylight to kind of start the hunt God. 
And uh, we have some surprises along the way. So we're going to have different envelopes that guys have to open at certain uh, times throughout this couple days of the hunt. And then those envelopes are going to have surprise challenges that no one knows about uh, until they open the envelope. So it'll be uh, interesting, to say the least. That's cool. <laughs> that's that's neat, man. Yeah. Uh, I, like, I really like the whole hunt concept. And, and let me make sure I heard you right. You said you have to try to cover 20 miles before daybreak? Yeah, so the rule is, um, you know, we have all these different teams, and yeah. to kind of ensure that people weren't hunting on top of each other, each team had to submit uh, three route options. Uh-huh. Um, and then so we assigned routes to make sure that teams weren't hunting on top of each other, and your route has to include 20 miles and 5,000 feet of gain, and you have to do that before you can actually start hunting. So oh, if, wow. you were to, if you were to spot a bear before then, well sorry, you haven't covered your 20 miles yet. And then we're basically starting at midnight. Um, so the idea is you're hiking most of that 20 miles through the night, hopefully finishing, um, you know, a bit after daybreak and then having daylight to kind of hunt that day. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty uh, atypical hunt, but it was kind of like a last-minute uh, plan. This area of Idaho that we're headed into um, is – sick with bears and they've actually reduced rates for non-residents and they're trying to get more bear hunting in there and we had this plan for this hike that went awry and so we just uh, decided to kind of combine those two things yeah that's cool that's and awesome. uh, i'm not real familiar with the wilderness but everybody's heard of the frank right and uh that's yeah. the biggest wilderness area in the lower 48 is that right yeah, the the Frank, um, I believe, is the biggest. And then, you you know, you talk about, like, the Bob, which I think is gets the most remote. So, like, you can get yeah. the most remote um, from roads within the Bob Marshall Wilderness. But, yeah, the Frank is a massive wilderness, big country. It's pretty interesting. There's some areas in the Frank where there's um, airstrips that were established before the wilderness designation. So a lot wow. of guys will actually fly into the Frank. Um, and then get dropped off just because you can get in there. But yeah, um, that's not the route we're going for this one. I have some buddies who actually just did that a few weeks ago on a bear hunt and had some great success. But yeah, yeah we're essentially just hiking in. That's cool, man. How, now, I don't I don't know this much about that stuff, but I'm assuming this is Grizz Country and hiking at night in Grizz Country just sounds like the definitely the death march <laughs> side of <laughs> side of what you're talking about doing is like how do you yeah. is, is that correct and how do you take precautions for that? Yeah, I basically just don't think about it. <laughs> um, no, it's not. It shouldn't be too bad. Uh, yeah. Grizz, where we're going to be, um, yeah, it shouldn't be too bad. So yeah, safety good. in numbers um, plus, you know, yeah, just, you know, when you're hiking at night, you don't want to think about what's going on out there. And yeah. Honestly, like, we are hiking in numbers and we'll be, you know, chatting and BSing and telling stories along the way and making noise. So it's not going to be like this stealthy mission where we should uh, surprise ourselves into a scary situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, it, it is like that fact alone is a lot of guys just flat out. You think of hiking in the wilderness and then you think of doing it in the dark, like that can start to play mental games with you alone. Yeah. And I remember even on my first, like my first wilderness hunt, um, the very first night I was, you know, our camp was four or five miles deep from the truck, but then we hunted, um, one evening and we're a mile plus from camp. And when dark went down and you realize you're miles from anywhere and then walking through the wilderness, like that stuff in the beginning can definitely play, uh, play some games with your head. 
Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, and that's kind of um, where we're at. You know, we're going to be going on a wilderness hunt this fall, and it's going to be – we kind of had intentions of doing this uh, one year out, but it's kind of uh, a year sooner. You know, nobody ever expects to draw a tag like this, but sometimes mm-hmm. it, you're you're the lucky individual who, who gets blessed with it, and that's so it happened this year. And so now we're kind of in a scramble and trying to learn as much as we can from people who, who are in the know – uh, and try to just lessen that learning curve. But, you know, you're just talking kind of about your first backcountry experience. What do you think is like some of the one of the biggest things that you took away from that first trip in that you wouldn't have thought would have been the case beforehand? Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's uh, it's kind of one – I mean, not that I've been doing it forever, but I've been yeah. doing it for a, quite a few years at this point. Um, I'm certainly not like – the expert, but I certainly have uh, some experiences and can tell you a lot of what not to do just because I've learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it is one of those things where it's cliche but true, but as much as you look at maps, uh, be it Google Earth or Paper Maps or something like Onyx or Go Hunt, like is it, you can look at country online or on paper, um, but everything is truly different until you get there. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say don't study ahead because I think the more you can study ahead, the more helpful it is in the field. But at the same time, uh, it's really, really easy, especially when, you know, you're from Texas or I'm actually from Missouri. I'm from the Midwest. So Mm. when you're not used to, um, mountain country and you're looking at maps, it's really, really easy to kind of underestimate it. Like, Oh yeah, I'll just go up over that mountain. (laughs) And then you get there and get to looking up at that sucker and you're like, Oh, well, that was a dumb idea. Um, Yeah, it you know, just that's one thing is just what it takes to um, not navigate in the country because the the country is usually big, train features are big. So I don't mean navigation in terms of like direction or getting lost, Mm -hmm. um, but more of just what it takes to cover ground in that country. Yeah, Um, it's easy to to underestimate that. I mean, I think of even going back to my first elk hunt, and I remember spotting an elk uh, on on a hillside, basically, and thinking, oh, well, I'm just going to, like, go up there. And it, it was an opposing hillside, and I didn't realize there was basically, like, a nasty creek bottom between myself and it. And I quickly realized as I started heading that way towards that elk that I had glass that it was going to take some effort to get there. It was going to take some time to get there. And so just little things like that of um, – yeah, just, just covering country, and uh, you'll soon realize that elk um, are incredible in the sense that they're so big, but they can move so efficiently yeah. um, and just make us look ridiculous. Oh, I know, man. It, it's funny, you know, you talked about us being from Texas, and I'm sure being from Missouri, you had that experience at one point in time where you're like, I'm a flatlander, but I'm in decent shape. I'm going to go to the mountains and see what happens. And then you just start sucking wind hard. And <laughs> all of a sudden, the elk that you just saw, you busted, and they're three miles away. And like, How did they even do that? You know, it's crazy. Yeah. But um, it is. One of the, uh, you brought up a good point, like about being able to navigate the terrain and not so much, you know, uh, understanding how to get from point A to point B, but like, in like what you're talking about with the death march uh, earlier, um, that's mm-hmm. 20 miles in you know less than a day, um, and I kind of am wondering. And I, I my plan is to try to make it out to this section of New Mexico this summer and try to get a good bearing for this. But maybe you just have a good idea. Like, what can a person assume they can, how much distance can they cover, like, say, on a hike in 
uh, in a day? You know, like what's a good idea if you want to go in and backpack hunt? Like, what can you bomb in and do reasonably without killing yourself and then not, uh, without being, like, so far back in that, that uh, it doesn't make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's different being on a hunt versus just seeing how much ground can I cover in that type of country. Yeah. Um, and then elk hunting specifically, um, you really have to keep in mind, okay, I might be able to get six miles in, but what happens if I actually shoot an elk now? And yeah. can I get that thing six miles out? Um, and so it's easy to throw around numbers and, you know, kind of glorify getting deep and going farther and all that. And getting in is not the issue. It's, it's, it, and again, specifically for elk hunting, it's thinking through what, how far can I go and actually get an elk out and take care of it? And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, there's no single answer there. Like everybody has different physical capabilities, but then, beyond what you're physically capable of, you also have different conditions in terms of heat, um, you know, the time that you can have meat out in the field, or do you need to get it back as soon as possible because it's hot. So um, I, the first elk pack out that I did was six miles. And Ooh. man, it's, it's uh, <laughs> you'll learn for sure. <laughs> um, we've had some shorter ones since, but yeah, I mean, in terms of just hiking and packing in, um, you know, one thing I always encourage guys to do is set up your your schedule and your time to allow yourself to get in without feeling rushed. And mm-hmm. I know that that's tough to do because this is a hunt you've been looking forward to for months or maybe even years. And you want to get in there and you want to get started. But at the same time, um, don't burn yourself out pumping in a 40, 50 pound pack and going hard on day one where you're now in recovery mode on day two already, because on day two, you need to feel fresh and not have to be recovering. Yeah. And so it, it can be, um, and again, for coming when you're a flatlander, it can be really easy to bring yourself out easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you have, you know, five, six, seven days to hunt, I would play that first day or two pretty dang smart. Um, in terms of not killing yourself because a lot of guys can hunt hard for two or three days, but how you, how effectively and how hard you can hunt on day four, five, or six is really where the differences are. So that's really where your training comes into play. That's really where, you know, your nutrition comes into play and basically how well you've prepared yourself and taken care of yourself is really going to manifest itself on you know, day three, four, five, six, not day one or two. Yeah, no, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I haven't really thought about that too much. I've uh, just, I try to have the tough guy mentality when I'm out hunting like that, you know, and not to not to say that negatively, uh, but like, you know, sometimes you just got to tough things out and just deal with it and hunt, but there's just so much you can do of that before your body tells you no, right? And yeah. um, my, I always try to look at my, or not try to look at them, but I end up approaching hunts to where I go as hard as I can until I can't go anymore. And like what you're saying, uh, especially in elk hunting, because it seems that no, the longer you're out there, the more September progresses, a lot of times the better the hunting gets. So why mm-hmm. there's no reason to wear yourself out on day one and two when day four, five, and six are going to be the best days of the hunt. So no, yeah. it, it totally makes sense, man. Now, when you're talking about wearing yourself out and going – you know, a decent ways back in and that sort of thing. Um, let's talk a little bit about navigating terrain. Do you think it's better if you know you're going to have to gain some elevation? 
is it better to try to gain as much as quickly as possible or to do it gradually and and, uh, and just kind of have that steady incline? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's a right answer there. Um, it's a super interesting question for sure. I usually have a spot picked out that I want to head into, um, and then I'm figuring out the best way to get there, not based off of just elevation, mm-hmm. um, but really just nav. Like, there's a there's an interesting combination of trying to use trail systems, but then the more you use trail systems, the more people you're going to have using those trail systems, just because it's that path of least resistance. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes if you can look at accessing areas that don't have trail systems, you don't have to go as far to actually get further remote. Mm-hmm. Um, you can actually get further away from people by covering less distance, but just basically, you know, covering some harder, shorter, but harder miles. Yeah. And so I've done, I've done all the above. I mean, we've done, um, longer packs in using more gradual approaches, more trail systems, more, uh, friendly terrain and then we've gone shorter distances but hellacious climbs that maybe some people overlook or some people don't want to do just to kind of find the little hidden pockets um so i don't know that there's one right answer there it partially depends on i think your hunt and you know are you packing in there for five to seven days and wanting to get further deep and then basically establishing like a backcountry base camp. Are you doing, um, you know, quicker still maybe overnight hunts like multi-day hunts, but you're kind of bouncing around more and covering different country. Um, you know, in the end, sometimes it's just difficult because elk are where they are. And so I think another thing to look at is you're covering terrain is not solely focused on, not getting too narrowly minded focused on a spot, like however good you think that spot looks, but really looking at how can I move and cover country efficiently? Um, Meaning can I like work a rich system to be able to call into two separate drainages? Can I basically cover more ground smarter so that if I'm not finding elk, I can basically cover as much country as possible without killing myself. And then also, either reach in the country, as I mentioned, with either bugles, um, with locating bugles, or if it's more open country, maybe by glassing. And so sometimes it's the approach of letting your calling or letting your glassing um, cover country for you, but putting yourself in the right position where you can essentially cover country with your calling or with your glassing, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. That sounds like a good way to approach it. So you mentioned uh, training and nutrition as being uh, very important to kind of like your pre-hunt or I guess to your hunt as a pre-hunt thought, I guess. So like what, what does that look like going into the hunt for you? Uh, I mean, obviously uh, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, wearing your pack and just hiking with it. Um, Is there any other things that you might, uh, you might take on during the summer prior to elk season? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the closer you get to season, the more hunt-specific training you want to do, Um, meaning you don't have to be killing yourself in November to train for next September's hunt. Obviously, it's good to stay in shape and good to do something active. I just mean, 
that your activity, your training, your workout doesn't have to be hunt specific if you're eight months out. But as you get closer and closer and you're now eight weeks out, you want your training to be much more specific to the demands that you're going to encounter on that hunt. And so it turns into a lot more, you know, legs and lungs essentially. And so for me, I, I take that like high level um, kind of year round look at training and in the quote unquote off season, I'm still staying in shape, but I'm doing something less specific to hunting. And then as I get closer to opening day, it's more specific to hunting. Obviously, training with your pack, hiking with a weighted pack um, is invaluable. It definitely has to be a component of what you're doing. But if you're in Texas, you know, hiking with a 60 pound pack is all well and good, but you're going to struggle to find the elevation, right? So oh, yeah. you're going to struggle to find the terrain to replicate the type of movement that you're going to be doing with that 60 pound pack. And so, especially for flatlanders, and I myself can relate, like, you want to hike with the pack no matter what, but you also want to supplement that with some um, some specific, I think, movements and exercises to help prepare for the elevation and for the terrains. Like, just a few that come to mind, um, you know, just basically box step-ups. Mm-hmm. And so, again, with a weighted pack, step up on a box, step down, step up with your other leg, step down mind-numbingly boring. You'll hate yourself within <laughs> 10 minutes, I promise you. Uh, I absolutely promise you, but it's super stinking effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just being, I mean, you can take just those and, like, if you can hike one or two days a week, do those one or two days a week, and then scale, right? So you might start by doing, uh, you know, let's call it 15 minutes with 40 pounds, and then the next session you're doing 25 minutes with 40 pounds. The next session, you're doing 40 minutes of 40 pounds. And so you can either scale time or you can scale weight. So either the duration of that is going up or the uh, the weight uh, in your pack is going up or over the long term, maybe both. So those box step-ups are really important, I think. Um, sandbag get-ups uh, might not sound like something to do with hiking, uh, but they're incredibly effective, not only at working the lower body, but actually work your midsection a ton. And something I think a lot of guys might overlook if you're newer to packing and and specifically packing weight is there's a huge, huge demand on your midsection um, and on your core. And by core, I don't mean like beach muscles in terms of having a six pack, but just basically your midline stability is really important because you're carrying weights up top and through your midline and trying to transfer that stability into your lower body where, you know, your legs are essentially carrying that load and moving you through country. So that midline stability is really important. Something like sandbag get-ups are really effective there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've done a lot of different things, tried a lot of different programs. Those are some of the things that stand out. We actually do have a free training program that we offer. Um, if you just go to xomountaingear.com forward slash train, you can get that. Uh, it's actually with a, a gym with some guys from Texas. So, oh, you know, sweet. go Texas again. Yeah. Uh, but they're in Austin. They're called Atomic Athlete. And one of the owners of that gym, Jake, is a former Army Ranger, but also a super passionate backcountry hunter. And so he he knows what it's like to go from Texas to the backcountry and up to elevation. Um, and he also has, you know, a ton of experience with training. So, he has a very um, a very helpful perspective and outlook and a ton of knowledge, and so we actually did that free training program with him. So that'd be something to check out. <laughs> cool. Dude, that's awesome. Um, but yeah, 
So that's, I mean, that's just, uh, again, we could talk for an hour on that. I'm sure. Yeah. Because again, myself, but like being a flat lander, I've gone through that, um, and trying to prepare for, you know, elevation when you don't have it and being physically prepared for the mountains when you can only get out there maybe a time, you know, one time a year for a lot of guys. Yeah. So what, what I mean, there's definitely like, to me, a lot of guys, uh, especially if, you know, if they have decent enough money to go on an ice elk hunt or something like that, um, they're, you know, one thing that they're not going to have as much of is time. And I, I feel like that, um, you know, that that's where, uh, hiking with a backpack for, hours a day just doesn't make sense you know so yeah uh, i'm sure you guys in that program uh, address that in some of your workouts huh yeah for sure i mean i i myself struggle with that just as i'm busy with you know family and small kids and work and all the other demands that everybody else has uh and so it, it is difficult that's where for me even though i hate <laughs> i hate doing like weighted pack step ups if I can do those for 45 minutes, I get a much more intense workout than if I were to hike for 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. And so it's, you know, what's going to kick my butt most in the shortest amount of time is sometimes a factor I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. There is nothing to replace time on your feet, though, too. Um, I mean, you do uh, work your body differently if you're on your feet and under a pack for three hours than if you're doing it for a more intense 45 minutes. So I think as much as possible, you do have to work that in, and that doesn't have to be an everyday thing. I mean, congratulations if you have uh, the time to work out two or three hours a day every day. <laughs> I certainly don't. Yeah. But I will say that um, I've consistently, and again, this is something I do more and more as we get closer to the season, that I'll, I'll do what it takes to find the time, meaning there's been days I've woke up on a Saturday at 3 a.m. to drive to a trail to hike for three or four mile, you know, hours and then still be back basically shortly after my kids are waking up. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I can hike from 4am to 8am and be home for the family at eight thirties and my family didn't really miss out, I certainly had to kind of suffer for it. But in the end, as much as four hours of hiking is good for you and it is that whole component of performing on little sleep on struggling through fatigue, that whole like mental toughness piece of doing that is also I think just as important as it is to hike for four hours because you're going to hit the point where you're tired out there where you don't want to keep going. And so sometimes the the suck of those long early training sessions is as much as about kind of the mental battle of going through that as it is getting the four hours under your pack. So it's kind of a win-win. Right. So, um, to kind of go along with this is the nutrition side of things and, and like going into your hunt, what does that look like? And then how do you, how do you maintain decent health from what you're putting in your body on, uh, when you're back there, are you just eating mountain house or what does that look like? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, obviously I think the, it's it's interesting because it's all over the map. I think the nutrition that you do in the field for your hunt is only going to matter to a certain extent based off of what, off of what you're doing the rest of the year. Um, so if you're not, you know, eat, and I'm not saying like you have to be perfect, but if you're not eating super healthy, you're eating junk all year, then it probably doesn't matter what you're doing in the field. Like 
eating super high quality stuff for four days during a hunt is only going to have so much effect if you're really not in the best shape anyway. Um, but yeah, I, so at the same time, uh, if you do eat pretty clean, um, and you stay in pretty decent shape, I think it's important to somewhat keep that up as much as possible in the backcountry. At the same time, you also have to realize that if you're hunting hard, your body is a furnace. And so sometimes just getting calories in uh, and getting sufficient calories in is really important and it's okay to throw in some things. So like I look forward to a backcountry hunt for 50 reasons. I mean, we can talk about the hunt itself and the adventure and the peace and the quiet, but like one of those 50 reasons that I look forward to a backcountry hunt is I can eat Pop-Tarts because um, <laughs> yeah. I don't eat Pop-Tarts throughout the year, but like, <clears throat> Hey, you know, I'm, I'm out here working hard and I need the calories. And so I can eat Pop-Tarts. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think it's an interesting balance. Um, you know, we've had discussions with this on our podcast. I think one of the things a lot, a lot of guys do wrong, um, is, not that they don't necessarily pack enough food, but they actually don't eat enough food. Mm-hmm. And so you got guys all over the scale. Some guys don't pack enough food because they're trying to be light. Some guys pack ridiculous amounts of food, but it's not something, you know, again, you get like day two, three, four into the hunt, and now they have this food that they don't have the appetite for. Um, and so part of this is trial and error, but it's easy to get burned out on stuff even in a few days, if you only have the same things or if you only have certain types of things. Mm -hmm. And so it comes into like personal, what actually sounds good on day four of a hunt when I'm hot and tired and don't necessarily feel like eating, but know that I need the calories. Because Mm -hmm. again, if you get behind on calories and a huge factor is if you begin to get it all dehydrated, that stuff takes a massive toll on what you can do later in the hunt. So I think, getting the a proper number of calories is really important. And then picking foods that you know you can eat and that you're not going to basically like, if I see one more cliff bar, I'm going to puke type thing <laughs> um, is really important. And sorry, cliff bar, I'm not picking on you because I eat them. But if you don't have any sort of variety, you can burn yourself out. Basically. Sure. So in, in terms of specifics, um, I, I do a bunch of really easy stuff. You mentioned Mountain House. I've done them. A lot of them are pretty good. They're, I mean, there's more and more similar brands every day. Um, so you can you can kind of tailor if you want to be more, more clean, if you will. Um, uh, you can go Heather's Choice or Off Grid Food Company or Peak Refuel. Like there's more and more cottage brands doing more natural food, I would say, that's mm-hmm. free dries compared to like a mountain house that has a bunch of crap in it. I actually dehydrate a lot of my own stuff these days, um, which sounds really intimidating, but it's actually stupid, stupid easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I've been able to tailor exactly what I want and then re- dehydrate it myself and rehydrate it in the field. So um, again, that's that's a- plug stuff. We have, we have podcasts on nutrition and on dehydrating and all of that. We actually have another... Um, food guide so you can plug in some numbers on your body weight your activity level on the hunt and actually get some calorie recommendations based on that so you can go to exomountaingear.com forward slash nutrition on that one 
And it's kind of another freebie that goes into a lot more detail on if you really want to look at numbers and kind of plan and you're the guy who wants to kind of geek out a little bit on nutrition, that's definitely a great resource to look at or just something to do quick and dirty to make sure that you're not underestimating calories because there's this idea out there that, you know, the quote unquote 2000 calorie standard diet, but a lot of guys, if they're hunting hard, they're going to need, you know, three to 4,000 calories a day. And so now it's a question of how do you get that many calories and do it smartly to where you're not packing too much weight, but you also have the right types of food. So, I mean, it's, there's, there's part, there's a lot of preference to it and then there's, part trial and error but there's a lot of good information out there as well yeah yeah for sure man yeah and that's uh that's just part of the stuff that we have to learn you know part of the stuff that we're working on trying to understand and i don't kind of from what i see is like everything that you're going to put in your pack is the same but food is what's going to change for the most part right like if you're going on a hunt Mm -hmm. and it's a four-day hunt it's uh a b c d and e plus however many days of food so at that yeah. point in time, it's kind of like, like, especially with this hunt, we have to decide, are we going to go in for four days, come out and resupply? Or are we going to go in for nine days, the whole extent of the hunt, and try to, to pack for that much? So, you know, uh, EXO, one of y'all's big things is packs, right? Um, what are you mm-hmm. looking at for a pack uh, and trying to make sure it has enough room and enough capability to do a, a backcountry-style hunt like this? Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's um, – I, I tend to see a lot of crossover, and you just kind of referenced it, but this idea of you guys might have like a seven, eight-day hunt. Yeah. But the question becomes, are you packing everything for seven or eight days? Are you packing for three or four days and then, you know, coming out to either resupply, to move to plan B, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, so many guys go, well, I have a seven-day hunt, so I need a pack so big. But the question isn't how long is your hunt, it's how long are you packing for at a single yeah. time. Um, so you might be going out to Colorado or New Mexico or wherever and have eight days to hunt, but does that really mean you're carrying eight days' worth of food and gear at, at a time? Most, and especially as you're newer, I think a lot of guys default um, to thinking they they should pack for all seven or eight days at a time when in reality they should be packing for three or four days at a time. And especially if you're heading into new country, if you're packing for seven or eight days, I mean, you're, you're kind of putting all your eggs in that basket. Mm -hmm. Um, You're hoping to find elk. Um, And I've certainly done that. I've, I've gone into new country with a week's worth of gear and I've, I've basically set up a backcountry base camp and hunted from there for seven days. And, um, shoot, I killed an elk on day seven. So I'm not saying don't do that, but also think through, uh, maybe we should go in with gear and food for three, four days, and either we're into elk in three or four days or we're not. Either we've killed something or we haven't. Either we know we need to move to a different area or we don't. Or like the, the worst case is, yeah, elk are still here. We haven't filled our tack. We have to make a quick run out and resupply and come back in. So I think that that strategy determines a lot on your pack um, selection. Mm -hmm. We always, like with our pack specifically, want to focus on, even if you are getting a larger pack, we want it to compress down really well. Um, 
And so even if you do get a larger pack that has the capability of carrying seven days worth of gear, it's going to compress down really well um, if you're only carrying three days worth of gear. And it's going to compress down really well if you're heading out into a ground blind in Texas for four hours. Um, you know, packs, good packs are an investment. And so that's always something we're keeping an eye on, especially as more and more guys are doing all different types of hunts. Yeah. Uh, myself included, you guys as an example. If you're dropping some decent coin on a really good pack system, we want be, you to be able to use that in New Mexico on an elk hunt, but we want you to be able to use that back home in Texas as well. Um, so we always want the pack itself to compress really well. And then something else we really focus on is we have one frame system and you can put different bags on it. So if you wanted to, you could get a pack system with a day pack and then have a different bag that goes on the same frame that is now good for a week-long hunt. So um, in the end, versatility is key um, to that. But in terms of actual pack sizing, you know, if you stay in um, three three to 4,000 cubic inches, like in that ballpark, you're kind of going to stay within that good three to five day range. If you're wanting to get beyond five days, you're wanna, you want to get up closer to 5,000 cubic inches or larger. Mm-hmm. Again, this is like generalities for most guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Um, it's yeah. tough too because <laughs> the newer guys tend to carry more. Um, and so they're going to tend to need more space. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the guy who's been doing this a long time and, you know, has upgraded high quality gear and doesn't carry a bunch of extras, he might be able to take a pack further, um, than other guys. So there's a lot to that. I would say in the end, um, again, I'm not, I'm not at all trying to be salesy, but whether you're looking <laughs> at our packs or another company, I would say just talk to them. Um, mm-hmm. so, I mean, you can call us up and tell us about your hunt and your needs and what you do. And we'd be happy to kind of talk through the pros and cons of specific models that we offer and how they might benefit you. Um, and I would hope that if you're looking at another company, they do the same for you. I can obviously only speak for ourselves here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah. And it makes sense to me. And maybe it is because I'm a newbie uh, at, like, the backpacking style hunting. But it would make sense to get something uh, a little bit bigger. That way you're prepared for, say, if you do go on, like, a sheep hunt in Alaska in 10 years or something like that. A, you want a a pack that's going to last that long. But B, like, you're going to want something that's going to hold everything you need um, for, like, a big adventure style pack like that as opposed to having to buy something you know, uh, again, that's going to be a bigger pack, you know? So to me, it makes sense to go with that, you know, 5,500 or whatever it is that, that you, that, um, uh, you were talking about while ago. And then like you were saying, it'll always compress down. You can always day pack mm-hmm. with it. Right. And it's going to, what yeah. you might add like a, a half pound, three quarters of a pound or whatever to your overall pack weight. But that's, that's minimal in comparison to, you know, what, what else you might have to do if it if it makes you hike out a whole extra time because your pack isn't quite big enough to do what you need it to do then you really just burned a lot of extra calories so i don't know it kind of makes sense and then i like the idea of uh you know just having it multifunctioning you know like uh i don't know we were talking um actually tyler and i on uh just kind of our weekly show about uh how it's cool like uh, y'all's packs well let me just let you explain this um do, how does the load shelf situation work, and do all your packs have load shelves, or some of them do and some of them don't? 
Yeah, so we have one frame and then different bag options that go on the frame. Yeah. So you, you basically buy a complete pack system and it's a bag and a frame. Uh, and then as I mentioned, down the road, you could always buy just a bag only and yeah. then put on your same frame. Mm-hmm. But the frame basically dictates your fit, um, function, and performance, meaning you can buy our smallest bag and have the same load capacity in terms of max weight and in terms of hauling meat. Yeah. You'd have the exact same load capacity as you would if you bought our biggest bag because it's going to have the same frame. Mm-hmm. So the bag choice dictates internal gear storage. Yeah. But basically, all of the bags quickly detach from the frame. Um, think of like folding it open kind of like a clamshell. Mm-hmm. And now you put your load between the bag and the frame. Yeah. So there's compression straps on the frame itself that begin to secure the load. And then as you reattach the bag to the frame, but now with your load in between, there's four more compression straps that make connections. And it's kind of subtle, but if you look at it, all of the connections from bag to frame, they're sewn at an angle. And the reason they're sewn at an angle is that as you add compression, as you're pulling the bag to the frame over the load, it's an upward angle. So as you're adding compression, you're also adding a lift. So if you have, you know, 60 pounds of meat between the bag and the frame, you're sucking the bag back to the frame. It's providing the lift and holding that meat up nice and high and tight so it's not sagging weight on you. So, yeah, all of our systems do that. You're going to have a load shelf between the bag and the frame. You're going to have the same load hauling capability um, no matter which bag you choose, because you have that frame. The frame itself is uh, it's a titanium frame, so you have incredible amounts of strength at a light weight. Um, and really, the the weight capacity. And we don't say this like to be, you know, marketing whatever. It's just the truth of we don't put a weight capacity on it because it's it's it exceeds what you want to do. Basically, yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, we've tested it with. 250 pounds of sand just to test the integrity of the frame. Nobody doing that in the field, right? So mm-hmm. if you're uh, if you're a stud and want to pack 100 whatever pounds, the pack's going to do it. And if you're smart and only want to pack <laughs> a smaller amount of weight, uh, the pack's going to be ready for it. So, yeah. I mean, we get questions a lot as guys are, like, say they're deer hunting, be it whitetail or mule deer. Like, can I haul out a whole deer? Sure, go for it. Um, elk, can we do like a half of a bone apple? Yep, absolutely. So like, it's basically ready to do whatever you want to throw at it, mm-hmm. um, basically at any time. And that's the whole beauty of the system is you go back quite a few years and you had a pack that was good to hunt in and then a separate pack that was good to haul loads in. Yeah. But like trying to find one pack system that could do all that, because if you... If you only have a rigid frame, it might be good for heavy loads, but it's super cumbersome to hike in, to hunt in, et cetera. So if your frame's just rigid, now you're limiting your mobility. It's difficult to hike in. It's difficult to draw your bow. It's difficult to get into shooting position. So for us, um, there's this combination of providing some level of freedom of movement, especially torsionally, meaning kind of twisting and turning through your mid to upper body. 
but at the same time, the pack needs to be super vertically rigid to support heavy weights and not barrel or buckle or have, you know, any sort of discomfort issue there. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And I just think about all the capabilities and possibilities of, like, having that true load shelf situation where, I mean, for us, um, you know, talking about versatility, uh, a lot of times we're trying to figure out a way to strap a tree stand onto a uh, – <laughs> bag full of cameras. Uh, yeah, bag full of cameras, and it just doesn't work. But if you can put that thing between your actual bag and frame, you know, it might be, yeah, it might be for meat hauling, but it's going to have some other, you know, great benefits too. So it's cool that it works Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the origins of the company are certainly in Western hunting. That's certainly where um, the focus is, but at the same time, um more and more guys are seeing the beauty of a pack system like ours for hunting that they're doing Midwest, East, Texas, yeah. whatever, because exactly what you said, if you're the guy who's packing in tree stands on public land and trying to get a decent ways, you know, from the crowd, even in the Midwest or wherever, like been there, done that, it sucks to carry the tree stand just with its little straps. But yep. if you can have <laughs> a solid pack system that's going to pack your tree stand and sticks, whether you're doing a mobile setup or whether you're just packing in preseason to get it hung, um, it's super valuable. And then, it, it, you know, it's just the versatility that op- it opens up. Like this past November, I was on a whitetail hunt in Missouri. And it, I mean, it wasn't super far, but I was on some public land and got about a mile and a quarter deep and shot a buck and just packed the whole buck out in my pack, you know, forget dragging that thing a mile plus like everybody else is doing or riding four wheelers into areas. I can get away from the four wheelers. I can go where they can't go. And now I can hunt in new spots that everybody else in Missouri is overlooking because they're like, well, how the heck do you get a deer out of there? Well, you got a decent pack system, you can do it. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, I certainly get some looks when I'm packing a deer out in a pack like that and everybody else is sitting on their four-wheelers, but it really does <laughs> open up new opportunities. Yeah. No, it's cool, and it's, I don't know, there's kind of just like the fun factor of knowing that uh, you do it under your own power, too. I don't know, uh, maybe I'm weird like yeah. that, but it, it it's like, it's pretty fulfilling to do that. So, no, that's cool, man. Yeah, when it, when sure. it Whenever you're talking about like going in with a pack and having that pack on your on your back and stuff like fits a huge thing and i i i only know that from like hearing other people talk about it right i've never been truly fitted for a pack i don't know exactly what fits i just in the past i've bought day packs and strap them on and kind of make it fit tight and go you know but like what what are you looking for in fit for a pack and how do you go about deciding exactly what fits you the right way yeah, I mean it's um, it it's hard to speak in generality, so I'm not trying to talk about our stuff. I only talk about our stuff, but in the sense like that's the context I have. And yeah, sure. one thing to look at is basically is the pack adjustable? Period. And so you get into a lot of pack systems, and they're just flat out not very adjustable. So to some extent, that pack either fits you or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you get into more of a higher-end system, it's going to have a lot more versatility and options to fit you specifically, which is, you know, what we do. Yeah. Um, so we have, uh, and I'm not sure when this is airing, so it's kind of a interesting timing to talk about it. But <laughs> as of today, um, we have one frame system. It's called our K2 frame. This summer, um, 
we'll be launching a new frame system, the next generation, so the K3 frame. Uh-huh. The new K3 frame will have um, even more adjustability in, in options to it. But in general, there's, there's a couple main things you want to consider. One is your torso height, uh-huh. um, which is essentially, and I'm grossly oversimplifying this, but basically the length of your midsection. Um, so you can be six foot and have shorter legs and a longer torso, or you could be six foot and have longer legs and a shorter torso. Essentially, high-quality pack systems are going to have some sort of adjustable fit for your torso length, um, and we have quite a range of adjustment in there and really, really easy adjustments to make. I mean, some pack systems you kind of like, you have to tear it apart and do all this crazy stuff to adjust the torso length, whereas on ours, it's in a couple seconds, you can tune it, tweak it, try it, tune it, tweak it, try it. It's super easy. But So torso length is something. And then something that some people tend to overlook is just your hip belt and how key that is. Mm-hmm. If you're using a pack that's one size all in the hip, one size fits all in the hip belt, you might be fine if you're, say, the average 36-inch waist or whatever, but if you're smaller or larger, you might run into trouble. Uh, and so we have three size-specific hip belts that cover a range. Obviously, building a hip belt that works for a guy who has a 32-inch waist and a 42-inch waist, like that 10 inches is a big, big difference. And so yeah. especially with our system where our we design our packs so that they transfer weight to your hips and you're not carrying it all in your upper body. Um, I'm sure we've all been there where we've been carrying some level of weight uh, and you're basically carrying it in the shoulders. Your upper body gets super fatigued fast. Our system is designed to have very, very small percentage amounts of weight in the shoulders and actually the vast, vast majority of weight transferred to your hips and into your lower body. And when you're doing that, hip belt um, sizing becomes a critical factor. So long story short, um, torso height, hip belts, all that needs to be, you know, very adjustable or size specific for you. Um, unless you just happen to be the super average guy and that pack happens to fit you, but <laughs> I, I am I mean, a very we, super I, average guy. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, we did, we had a wedding last year that I was in and one of the groomsmen was, uh, uh, not average at all. He was, uh, I think, a 44 waist and a 29 inseam. So <laughs> he was a wow. little different probably than your average guy. Uh, might have tough fi- time finding the pack that fits him right. But that's where uh, yeah. you might just have to, like, do a lot of box step-ups, right? Yeah. <laughs> Get into shape. <laughs> Fit into the pack instead. Um, so, so, okay, so you've talked a lot about uh, the pack and then how the core, your core uh, whether it's, you know, the the belt is going around your core to kind of hold up the whole pack or you're just talking about, like, mobility in the backcountry. Your core is very important. And so, like, moving on mm-hmm. down, um, your feet are very important when you talk about, like, having 100 pounds on your back as well. So, um, mm-hmm. t- and then taking care of your feet. So, like, what are you – are you wearing boots? you wearing trail runners? And w- what does that look like for you? Yeah, this is, like – Maybe the most important and the worst thing to discuss ever. Um, I mean, your feet can make or break your hunt uh, quickly. So, I mean, if, if you're if you get out there and you're having significant blisters or pain or discomfort in your feet, 
I mean, how the heck can you keep hunting? How can you hike in the mountains? How can you chase elk? How can you cover ground if your feet are tore up? And so it's I might just die back there. Like, I don't know if I can get back to the truck even. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's super, super critical. And then it's also the worst thing ever to talk about because I could tell you about my favorite boot and how great it is and you could try it and it could absolutely wreck your feet (laughs) um and so it's just super difficult uh to make like specific recommendations there um yeah it's tough i mean this i've we've tried to do podcasts on this we've talked i mean i'm not the expert but i know so many experienced hunters and talking with them and it's like what is there i mean we were having this conversation with somebody yesterday we always say it's like part trial and error. Um, but how do you, like, what are some shortcuts? Like, how do you lessen that curve of finding the right boot for you? And honestly, it's, I don't know that there is a shortcut. Yeah. So, so there's um, not like any, any like tips. So if I was to walk into a Cabela's or something, I could try on these boots. And if it was touching here or there, then it's probably going to create a hot spot or a blister. I mean, other than, yeah. than, than spending thousands of dollars on boots possibly there's really no way to tell i guess yeah i mean obviously the in terms of shopping go somewhere local if you can um try as many different options if you can for some guys that's difficult because they don't have a cabela's they don't have an rei they don't have a, a whatever to try a bunch of different options at that point you can fall back on be it amazon or zappos or backcountry.com or all those different places that are going to give you free returns, basically, where you can try it in the house. Um, as you're trying boots on, you want to, I mean, a few things come to mind, obviously, more than just walking around the house. Um, try and do some level of inclines, like whether that's stairs or what have you, but the way that your foot interacts with that boot on flat ground is going to be different than the way it interacts when you're climbing or when you're side-hilling or what have you. And so not only doing, you know, say stairs in your house, if you're trying to boot, you can't go outside because of the returns. I would go so far as to set up some, some level of uneven surfaces in your house, meaning like step off the edge of things, like plant your foot where it's not perfectly flat and level, stand on some inclines, declines, like feel your heel pocket slipping or not. Um, try different leasing techniques, think about what socks you're going to be wearing because socks can make a huge difference. I mean, yeah, we could talk a ton about that. But, I mean, things to look for, obviously heel slip is going to be one of the major issues that can make things go wrong fast. If your heel's moving, creating friction, you're going to get hot spots, you're going to get blisters, that's no bueno. So how a boot fits you in the heel cup is really important. Um what complicates that is a boot might have a really great heel cup for your for your foot, but sometimes you might feel like your heel's a little high or a little low in that heel cup. And so sometimes it's just a matter of trying a different insole in that boot before you just chuck that boot all together because insoles have different volume or different stack height. Mm-hmm. And so as you increase or decrease insole height, it's moving your foot. Um, or your heel up or down within the heel cup, which can be really important to kind of fine-tune that. Another thing to look for is um, room in the foot box. So if you have a wider or more narrow foot, 
or your toes cramped basically up in that foot box because another place is this if your toes are cramped like on the outside especially on your pinky side you can get lots of rubbing or bad contact or pressure there that can create problems um you want to ensure that like a boot needs to be relatively snug uh but not tight so if it's too big it's gonna be more prone to home more prone to heel slip if it's too small um, think about what happens to your foot on day four or five when you've been hiking quite a few miles. Your foot's just going to naturally swell mm-hmm. because you've been doing a ton of miles um, and it might be warm. And so you're, you think through, if my foot swells, do I still have room? And then also think through downhills. So if you don't have enough room at the end of the boot and you're doing downhill, which you're no doubt going to do, Yeah. and your toes are making contact at the end of the boot, especially while going downhill, you're going to be in a world of hurt quick. Um, so you need enough space at the toe end of the boot so that you're not making a ton of contact going downhill because you'll, you'll basically start uh, losing toenails in a hurry. Oh, that sounds um, terrible. <laughs> doing that, so... Yeah, I mean, those are some things to look at. I know that was rambling, but hopefully that helps. Um, And then just in terms of, like, feet care, uh, I can't say enough how important it is to change socks. Um, Even on, like, a seven-day hunt, I'll typically only have two pairs, meaning a pair I'm wearing and a pair of extras. But I'm changing those not only daily, but even usually through the day. Um, So if I take a lunch break, a lot of times I'll change socks, put my quote-unquote fresh ones on, um, if ones I take off are super wet or nasty, instead of just throwing them in my pack, a lot of times I'll hang them off the back of my pack so that they can air dry. <laughs> and just keeping on top of changing socks is really important. Um, if you do start to experience any sort of hot spot, like not even a blister, but just a hot spot, like stop and take care of it right away because it's just going to get worse. Um, one of the best things I've found is Luco tape. Uh, it's like. L-U-E-K-O, I believe, mm-hmm. tape. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, that stuff, like, compared to a Band-Aid or an actual, like, call it blister patch or whatever, Luco tape sticks and holds um, like nothing else. So if you put Luco tape on, you can sweat as much as you want. You can go jump in the creek or the pond and take a bath on day three, but that Luco tape's going to be on your foot at the end of your hunt on day seven, like the stuff just stays put. Um, is that, is that, so much, is there a difference between Luco and athletic tape? Yeah, there is. Um, there's a lot of similarities for sure. And I'm like, not the guy to tell you exactly how they're different, but <laughs> I certainly, I have Luco tape and I have, you, you know, your basic like white athletic tape. Mm-hmm. The Luco tape is a little bit thicker, holds a little bit better. Um, it doesn't seem to be quite as like porous. Um, so it's a little more dense, if you will, mm-hmm. um, than a lot of your common athletic tape. And then it tends to, I know the stuff I have, which I just bought a roll and I've had it for years and think I don't have too many issues. I don't have to use it too much, but, um, like my roll anyway is wider. Um, it's probably two, two and a half inches, which obviously you can buy wider athletic tape, but a lot of times it's going to come in like maybe an inch width. um, so yeah, there's, it's definitely not the exact same. They might feel similar, but there's there's certainly some um, not only tactile differences but performance gotcha. differences there. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, 
All right. I will say, sorry, just on no, the Luca tape situation, if you have a blister, like an actual blister, I would not put Luca tape directly on it. I would put some sort of gauze or something over the blister itself and then put the Luca tape over it. Because blist- the Luca tape is going to hold so well that when you have that soft, blistery skin, if you were to remove the Luco tape, it's removing all of that skin Ooh, with it. Yeah, um, that's not good. Yeah, <laughs> like it's it's coming off. So if you have a developed top spot or blister or like an open, like say a popped open blister or something like that, do a thin layer of gauze on that and then Luco tape over the top because if not, you're going to be peeling off chunks of your feet with Luco tape. Man, every time we ask this boot question, it always ends up going into like something nasty and off-putting about feet. Every time. Yeah, it's around lunch usually. <laughs> so. like, I, I, if you want to talk about it, we have stories like from that death hike we did last year. Oh. Um, <laughs> you know, it was almost 100 miles in Death by there foot blister. People who literally started getting blisters within like the first six miles. Oh no! And and they said like there's only about two thirds of the guys finished. There's a bunch of guys who didn't finish, but there was guys who finished where like I legitimately looked at them and I would never question their man card because the <laughs> the way the condition of their feet and how many miles they hiked on absolutely torn up feet was unbelievable. I mean, there was guys who finished that hike with more Luco tape on their feet than they had skin on their feet. Hmm. I mean, it hmm. was people like were peeling off Luco tape and toenails were attached to it. No. I mean, we can, we can get gross. I don't know, man. There's a, there's a thin line between tough and stupid sometimes. And I, I flirt with it pretty often. Don't get me wrong, but oh yeah, man. That well, sounds... there's, so there's a guy who like the death hike tore him up so bad last year. And this was, Late June, early July, his feet were still in such rough shape. Come elk season, like September, October, he still couldn't hunt. Oh like, no! I mean, he hunted, but he couldn't. His feet still weren't normal. Um, and so this year, he was like, "No, I'm not doing the death." Yeah, hike. I ain't risking that. <laughs> no way. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. It's, yeah. a, it's kind of funny you bring that up. Um, so I, I'm a part-time youth minister, so I hang out with kids a lot, and they're always wanting to race and mess around and stuff. And <laughs> the other day we were at, a, at a, a major league ball game, and like this one kid wanted to race back to the van. Well, I'm like, I, I don't really turn down challenges ever. And so I'm like, all right. <laughs> and so it's uh, it's like 200 yards, and we take off sprinting, and he cheats and, ju- and jumps off, you know, uh, goes before go. And I'm about to catch him, and then I feel my hammy tweak and tighten up, and I'm like, oh, no, did I just draw a Gila tag and pull a hamstring? <laughs> and, and luckily, uh, it didn't. It, it was just like a you know kind of a, a little tweak. It wasn't time. like a bad tear or anything. I'm kind of over it now. But man, that's like a big yeah. consideration. Like the older you get, and the more like hunting becomes important to you. Um, not that those two things kind of go hand in hand, but often they do. Uh, like. Sure you know, your off-season preparation and things you do, like we're talking about fitness and nutrition and stuff like that becomes more important. And then you think about like, man, maybe I shouldn't climb this tree just to have fun because I could fall out of it and then I miss miss hunting season, you know, just things like that kind of yeah. start to pop up. But so, okay, let's say that you've done your death hike into, a, you know, 28-mile bear hunt and uh, You've uh, prepared well with your boot and sock selection. Your feet are not too torn up, but you just, in general, you are very tired. Um, what does Mark have in his pack to sleep on and sleep in? Uh, good question. So you, 
two things. One is sleep is really important. The other thing is I've actually, as I've been getting older, I mean, I'm only in my mid thirties, but you know, I'm definitely not 20 anymore. <laughs> I pay more attention, not only in something like the death hike, but even like a hunt to like quote unquote recovery. Yeah. Um, and so something that is easily overlooked, but I do a lot that you might already have with you is your trekking poles are fantastic for rolling out muscles. Oh, that's cool. So like at the end of the day or midday, I'll roll out my calves or my quads or my hammies or my IT band or if anything's bugging me or just feels fatigued or tight. Um, using your trekking pole is either a roller or basically like a pressure stick um, to work on your muscles is definitely more important <laughs> if you get older and something that I do more and more. So that's kind of a like on the topic of recovery. That's really important. That's and that's a new one for me, man. I hadn't heard that. So yeah, thanks for that. That's good tip. Good tip. Yeah, and then I've even gone as far as um, like last year on the death hike, I packed one of those. Uh, balls that are meant for rolling out pressure points. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was specifically for the death hike, just because I knew we were doing crazy mileage. But since then, I found one. It's from this company called Raw Allergy, like R-A-W, Raw Allergy. Mm -hmm. And they make um, cork balls for rolling out on. And the reason they're cork is they're just crazy light. So Uh I had this, the one I used last year was seven ounces, and this this one's like one point something. Um, so I'll even pack that now and that's really good for rolling out your feet or again, any sort of muscles. So yeah, that's not, uh, like the super macho thing to talk about, but doing that type of thing can make a difference, uh, on multi-day hunts for sure. That's cool. Sleeping, um, sleeping is obviously important. I've, you know, I'm always looking for ways to save pack weight when possible, I will say that sleeping is one of those things where after trying to go as light as possible for a while, I just swung the pendulum back and realized how important sleep is and comfort is. And basically the lightest pad isn't the best pad. Um, So in terms of sleep on the sleeping pad, I'm looking for something that's three inches at least probably in thickness. Um, Obviously we're talking inflatable pads here. Also don't, underestimate the importance of the R value of your pad, meaning the insulation of the pad. Like it's the only thing between you and the ground. Um, and if you don't have a pad that's insulated well, it can make a massive difference in how cold you sleep, whether or not you have a great sleeping bag or not. The pad can be a huge factor. Um, so yeah, I, I use, um, there's a, a pad from the company Nemo, M, uh, N-E-M-O, Nemo. They have one called the Tensor. Um, insulated sleeping pad. I've been using that for three or four years and absolutely love it. Um, I've had some good luck um, with like big Agnes pads in the past. Um, See to Summit makes some good insulated pads, but one of those inflatable insulated sleeping pads is totally worth it. And I would be weary of going with the lightest option just to save some ounces because from a comfort and durability perspective, I've definitely had some issues as I've tried to kind of push that boundary of just going, yeah, I want this pad because it's light. Um, so yeah, that's important. What did you, what else did you ask about besides sleeping pads? Well, like, uh, as far as your bag goes, you know, are you running like kind of the, it seems to be the standard is like a 20 degree bag for a lot of dudes. Uh, do you go one way or the other and then like, you know, down synthetic, like what's your bag look like? Yeah. 
Um, I do, I'm a down for the most part. Um, I think for most guys, if we're keeping the conversation to lower 48, um, and we're kind of keeping it to, you know, what we're talking about, like say your, uh, New Mexico elk hunt, like that type of thing, down's usually fine. Obviously it can be a different story if you're getting coastal, Northwest, Alaska, something like yeah. that. Like sometimes down's too much of a risk with moisture, but, um, it's easy to take care of down in your average 48 conditions. And even a lot of the down these days is treated, um, where it's not going to be waterproof, but still performs, um, well when it gets some level of moisture. So, um, down is essentially, it's going to take up a lot less space in your pack than synthetic. Uh, it's going to have a longer life in the end than synthetic fibers. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just better, um, better performance for the weight and space uh, and longevity. So down, yeah, I'm definitely a fan of. Yeah, I think 20 degree is a good number. The the difficult thing with like degree ratings, um, and this has gotten better, but in the past, like a company could claim basically whatever they wanted um, on temperature ratings on their bags. Like there's some stern, some standardization standardization on that now. There's like called EN temp rating. Mm-hmm. Um, so where some companies do more of standardized tests. So when company A is making a rating and company B is making a rating, they're making that rating from the same testing protocol, if yeah. you will, whereas before they didn't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing to be really cognizant of with temperature ratings is most companies are going to have a um, different temperature ratings. One is the comfort temperature and one is the Basically, you're going to freeze your nuts off, but you'll live temperature. <laughs> um, and so the 20-degree bag might keep you alive at 20 degrees, um, but you're going to hate life. Yeah. Because the actual comfort rating on that might be 35. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something to look at as well. Is If you're looking at temperature rating, number one, is it a standardized like actual temperature rating? And number two is... Is it, I think they call it the lower limit, which is basically kind of like the safety survivability rating, or is it the comfort rating, which is basically what you want to pay attention to if you have a 30 degree bag and knowing that you actually be comfortable at 30 degrees. Yeah, for sure. Um, and comfort's a big thing for me and Tyler both. We've discussed this. Like, man, I'm willing to go a couple extra pounds if it means I'm going to be comfortable and, and just enjoy my experience, you know? So, um, I got a down bag uh, that I'm looking to try out this season and kind of excited about it. But uh, I've just kind of been worried about the down thing some just because of like I'm learning more and more about how bad moisture is for, you know, and uh, like you were saying, we're going to a very arid part of the country. So it's not so much a worry about getting rain every day, but like what precautions do you take like for monsoon season? You know, like whenever you pack your stuff up in your pack, say you got pack on your back to go hunt that day. Are you using a dry bag, or, or what are you doing there? Yeah, I'm not most of the time. Basically, I only am using a dry bag if the conditions call for it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it is certainly smart to have that as an option. There's advantages to, um, like on your sleeping bag specifically, to not having it within its own dry bag. Mm-hmm. If you pack it within a dry bag, um, it's obviously protected. But if you don't need that protection, if the weather allows for it, we really prefer to loose pack the sleeping bag in the pack, um, basically because it conforms to fill any shape and void within the pack. Yeah. Versus if you put it in a compression sack, you now have this giant block, this blob, 
and now you're going to have this blob in your pack and all kinds of little voids and nooks and crannies that other gear won't fit in. Mm-hmm. Whereas basically you just put your down bag in your pack first and let it naturally compress as you're adding other gear to it. The pack or the, the sleeping bag is going to basically conform and fill these nooks and crannies. And in the, in the end you just can pack more efficiently. But yeah. If the conditions are you know dicey, um, a dry bag, is a really good option, whether that's a, a dry bag specifically for your sleeping bag. Like in our pack systems, we actually have a complete dry bag liner. Oh. Um, and the packs are very water resistant, but on our system, you can actually have a where your whole pack bag is basically lined with a waterproof liner, so that's a, an option. Um, but yeah, something to look at. I pretty much always will have a dry bag with me that's capable of carrying my sleeping bag, even if I'm not using it all the time to compress my sleeping bag. Because for me, a dry bag can serve multiple purposes. Um, if I'm in country where I need to hang my food, sometimes I'm just throwing all of my food in that dry bag and hoisting that up into the tree. Um, so yeah, it's just one of those, like a good size lightweight dry bag um, is one of those things that is a few ounces that can serve multiple purposes. And so it's maybe something you always want to have with you. Yeah, for sure. So what about water, man? How are you, how does your water system look? Are you a Nalgene guy or a bladder and, and, uh, you know, like what do you, how do you take advantage of water when you're around it? Yeah. Um, I have a pretty simple system. I use bladders for the most part. I typically do have some sort of bottle with me, usually not a Nalgene. Um, a lot of times I'll stop at a gas station and they, those smart water bottles, um, I could care less about the fact that it's voodoo water and has electrolytes in smart water, <laughs> but the shape of that bottle is super nice and they're really light, um, and durable. So a lot of times I'll have one of those and I basically use that if I want to mix any drinks, um, not meaning like a scotch on the rock mixed drink <laughs> or something, but you know, powders. Um, and so if I'm, you know, if I'm, you know, whatever you want to call it, like if you're the mountain ops guy or whatever, and you're mixing that type of thing, I'll mm-hmm. keep that out of my bladder just because bladders can get funky mm-hmm. if you introduce things other than water in them. Um, so yeah, my primary water source is the bladder. I, I use uh, a Sawyer squeeze filter, um, which is basically a little filter element you connect to a dirty bag. So you take one bag, you fill it with dirty water, you screw, you screw this filter element on that bag, and then you basically squeeze your dirty water through the filter element, and the filter element has a stream output of now clean filtered water. Um, the beauty and uh, kind of a key piece on that is you can take your average um, drinking tube from your hydration bladder and sew your cells what's called a quick disconnect kit. Long story short is um, you can take your mouthpiece off of your drinking tube connect the water filter to your drinking tube. And now without removing your water bladder from your pack, you basically push clean filtered water down the drinking tube and into your water bladder, filling your water bladder without ever touching it. Um, And so that's the system that I use. It's really simple, pretty dang cheap, and it's been really reliable. So, yeah, I can basically... You know, if I want to filter on demand, I can just fill up my bladder at any time by quickly disconnecting the mouthpiece and then essentially pushing clean water into my bladder. The other part of that system I really like is if I'm pretty good on water, but 
maybe passing a water source and know that I might not get to another one for a while, I'll just take um, my dirty bladder and just fill up with that dirty water and just carry it. And I can filter it later whenever the heck I want. So yeah. I really like that option as well. Um, you know, there's obviously pumps and steripins and all that, but uh, there's pros and cons to each of them. And at least for me and my needs and preferences, um, that Sawyer squeeze kind of is the best of best of all the uh, of all the options. Yeah, it's an interesting little system, and uh, the smart water thing is something we've heard. Um, so, did you teach Trent, or did Trent teach you about this <laughs> stuff? Because I feel like I know where this is going to go. But uh, you know, we had Trent Fisher on a while back, and uh, he was he he oh, even okay. said uh, smart water. Uh, bottle he gets at a gas station. So, like, to hear those two phrases, uh, both, you know, from two different people, somebody <laughs> had to teach one of the others. So, how did that go? Uh, yeah, I don't know on that one specifically. I, I, I will say I've been doing that before I met Trent. But uh-huh. I think he yeah. the same thing. So maybe there's like a, a mutual inspiration and it wasn't direct from either of us. Yeah, that's true. That's um, and that's the very humble way of saying it too. So good job, Mark. Bro, you're the OG. <laughs> Come on. You're the OG. Let them know. The thing I love about hunting with Trent, so we have we have this thing that we do with Exxon Mountain Gear called What's in My Pack. And yeah. So it's basically different guys and they take their gear list and they show what's in their pack. I've constantly begged Trent to shoot one, but if we ever do with Trent, it's not going to be called what's in my pack. It's going to be called what's on my pack. Because <laughs> Trent is just like, he looks like the guy from Mary Poppins with all the crap hanging off of him. <laughs> um, like, he, dude, he'll have like a jacket hanging off of his pack and his trekking pole dangling and all have like something else flying out of his pocket. So I love Trent. It's, uh, he uses his pack as like some sort of, I, I don't even know how he straps crap onto it. I'm like, dude, why don't you just put it inside the bag? That's what it's made for. But he's got his own style, man. It's what's yeah. on my pack. <laughs> That's kind of like Tyler. Tyler uses uh, bungee straps like you put on a foiler or something pretty often. I'm like, really? I mean, <laughs> just little additions. Yeah. But, no, it's funny. Everybody's got their own style, and that's uh, kind of what we're going to do is kind of take, you know, our ideas, take uh, people who know what they're doing, and uh, try what they're doing and kind of come up with your own thing. So, Mark, for sure, you know your stuff, dude, and we really appreciate your time that you spent with us and letting us pick your brain about this stuff, and uh, it, sh- it shows that you're a pro, man. So if people want to learn more about you and what uh, Exo Mount Gear has going on, where can we send them? Yeah, I mean, I'd just um, I'd hit exomountgear.com. Uh, even if you have zero interest in a pack, I would say go there, and under resources, there's that training plan we talked about uh that nutrition plan we talked about and then you'll also see a link that just says gear list that's also under resources so like all those what's in my pack videos um there's a dozen plus of those and basically if you're the guy who's trying to figure out what works or see what people are doing i mean part of the beauty is you can look at you know call it 15 different gear lists from different guys who have different perspectives but yeah you also see a lot of what's in common and so I'd say learn from that, and especially where you see commonalities, pay attention. Because if five guys are doing the same thing, like maybe it's worth trying it. So those gear lists are there, um, and that's a, just a really good resource to look at. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, man. Cool. Well, uh, we'll be sure to link to all that stuff uh, down below. Do you have any uh, big hunts? Uh, we talked about the hunt we're prepping for. Do you have any big hunts coming up this season? 
Um, yeah, so we're doing that bear hunt here uh, in just next week, basically. Um, and then this fall, I, it's still pinching myself when I say this, and I can't help but smile when I say this. I'm going to Alaska, um, which is something I've always wanted to do. Awesome. Um, and as it turns out, now we're just going twice to Alaska. So oh. we're going for Caribou in September, and then we're going to go up in November on Kodiak Island for Sitka Blacktail. So nice. those are kind of two uh, bucket list adventures, if you will. And, you know, we figured you're paying the 100 whatever for the Alaska license. You might as well take two trips to get the best for your money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, just trying to be efficient. That's, that's right. All. No, that's, that's, that's cool, man. That sounds like an awesome dream trip, and I can't wait to, to see more about that. And uh, real quick, y'all have your own podcast that you do that's specific to backcountry um, stuff. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's called the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. Um, you can actually see that under that same resources section on our website. There's a podcast link there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the Hunt Backcountry Podcast, you can, wherever the heck you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you can find ours there as well. But it is, um, it's pretty much, uh, myself and Steve, uh, who's essentially the co-host basically just having all kinds of different conversations mm-hmm. that relates to backcountry hunting with guests. So sometimes we're doing a specific series, like we've done building a backcountry rifle. We've done archery series. Sometimes it's very species specific. So there's a ton of great elk content or, you know, bear hunting or mule deer. And then we dive into gear safety basically if it relates to backcountry hunting whether it's hunting tactics training nutrition safety like anything you can imagine we kind of try and cover it at one point or another yeah um and we've had it for a few years as well so i would say if you do check it out make sure you kind of scroll back through older episodes because there's uh, a decent chance that we've talked about something that you'd want to check out um even in the archive yeah cool awesome man we'll be sure and link to some stuff like that below and uh Again, Mark, good luck this season, man, and thanks so much for spending time with us, dude. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about your hunt. This will be the the first year in in many years I'm not hunting elk in September, so I'm going to have to live vicariously through you guys. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Uh, Okay, well, we will try to do you proud, man, I promise. So uh, we'll do our best. No (laughs) pressure. All right, thanks, man. All right, see you guys. See ya. Man, that was some killer info. If you found this interview helpful, be sure and leave us a review below and comment what you thought was the most helpful tip from this episode. For sure. Make sure you also follow us on our social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, and also subscribe on YouTube so you can see how these hunts turn out. Remember, this is your element. Live in it. <laughs> Been waiting my whole life for that. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds i like pot calls i just like pot calls i enjoy calling with a pot call whatever direction you go including a box call which i don't personally use too much but they're fun and great and i started out with them yanni on the other hand 
one of my main turkey hunting buddies. He loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.